Tonight we do Darwin, next we do Freud, and then we have made it through. I think we should all get a little medal for this one. Um, do we have any comments or questions before we start in? I can report with pride that after having listened to Swami talk about Darwin for approximately 30 years, I finally got a clue as to what he was trying to say. Maybe everybody else understands more quickly, but I just, I read this chapter over about three times and finally I was really getting the picture of what he's trying to do. Swamiji's organization when he writes is very subtle and it, it maybe, maybe other people see it, but I'm just sort of like tuning in to um, how, he's, how, he's, how he puts things together. He himself doesn't do it at all rationally. In fact, he says, now when he sits down to write, he doesn't know what the next paragraph is going to be. He just knows that there's an intuitive flow and it's just going to come. I, I think he may have used to have had to be a little more conscious of the structure, but now it just happens for him. But this chapter was really interesting in a lot of the whole subject that uh, we've been talking all the way through about these these attitudes that have become all pervasive that are in fact counterproductive to our efforts to self-realization. We don't even know that we have them, we just accept them as true. And uh, as I've said every time we talk about this book, but with each chapter I feel it more profoundly, this really is an effort on Swami's part to create a whole new redirection for the way our society thinks. And I do believe that the time will come when this will be true. Interestingly, I was talking to Sean Mishore last week. He was visiting. And Sean is in charge of Crystal Clarity Publishers, the, of course, Ananda's publication house. And I was talking to him about how much I like this book and uh, just various things like that. And he was saying that they have been unsuccessful in persuading the big chains to even take this book, which is a big blow for the distribution of it because um, they can't find a category for it. The categories they find are very academic categories, and when they find very academic categories, it doesn't qualify, because it doesn't have footnotes, and you won't believe this, it doesn't draw conclusions from primary sources, it draws from secondary sources. So the buyers for the, the chain bookstores in the departments that they think they could put it in all think in terms of academics, and the book doesn't fit. And, there was a, and Swami's also unqualified to write this book, according to the standards that they use. Just ridiculous. But it, it almost is, is a great, one of the greater testimonials for this book. In fact, we ought to put this on the outside. In fact, I should suggest to Sean that we boldly turn this, you know, rejected by the book buyers because it didn't fit the categories. Um, I'm amused, Swami makes reference in here to this book by Cremo and Thompson, I think is their name. This book that um, Swami speaks up for, the reason he speaks up for it is because among uh, many serious people it's considered one of the wackoest books that there is. It's just way out there in terms of what uh, regular academicians believe. And in fact, one very famous anthropologist, maybe names I know like Leakey or a name like that that's really well known, he actually said, you know, this book is pure garbage. And the authors put that on the back of the book, <laughs> which, you know, caused you to really both like both the authors and be interested in the book. <laughs> because that's, you know, it just says, well, this is not your conventional story. 
But this is not your conventional story. But it's so interesting that the book is being rejected on the very grounds that the book is written, which is that people are hypnotized by certain ideas instead of being willing to just take things as they are and think for themselves and really decide that this is the way it's done and this is not done that way and therefore it can't possibly be true. Instead of saying, does it work? Is it a good idea? And so it's a... I also today just was driving and I turned on the radio and I have no idea, I'm going to say this without having any idea of what, if this author or her book is worthwhile, but it was Ariana Huffington. You know, she's a, the writer, I guess her husband ran for governor or ran for senator or something like that. She's written a book called Pigs at the Trough, rather graphic name, and it's about uh, uh, corporate corruption and how big money is ruining everything. It's all, she was, she, her voice was interesting and her energy was very dynamic, so I stayed and listened to her for a few minutes. But the main thing she was saying, which was relevant, was she was only dealing with politics and so on, but she was saying the media does not report a lot of what's going on. But she said there's a lot of grassroots energy of people who are just saying we've had enough. You know, it's got to be different. We have to start running our society differently. And Of course, some people will work politically and some will work in the medical field and some will work here and there. And, uh, but, but that's also what we're doing. We're just trying to get this energy going that says enough is enough. And I do think there's a, a swelling, a groundswell of energy because uh, the system isn't working. It may take a year, it may take a decade, it may take 20 years, but every change that you see starts somewhere and then goes, it, it always starts a long time before it finally uh, has, finds fruition. Just like when you build a building, you have to go underground and do all these things before you get back to ground level, before you can go up from there. So it's less important that it succeed in the short term. It's more important that the energy be clear and the ideas be valid and the uh, people be dedicated to it. And then over time, it always, it always comes through. And I feel the more I read this book, the more I can really see how this is one of those situations where he's dismantling a great deal that ails us. But it's going to be a long time before people know that that's what's been done. Even just in, in the reverse, you know, the phrase, the survival of the fittest, is just something that everybody says. And, and you don't really necessarily stand back. I mean, people who've never even heard of Darwin, what to speak of having read him, or having a clue as to what it means, we'll still, talk, we'll still talk about the survival of the fittest. In other words, the idea has just filtered down and become a, a part of the way we think. But we could just as easily say, you know, cooperation brings joy. The more I help others, the happier I am. I mean, those could become the little watchwords of our culture just as easily, like, like these negative phrases are. But these are the ones that have taken us over and now we're having to move in another direction. But these little things are very important. Last night in the satsang we were having, we were talking with a, um, a lot of energy about the fact that our whole life is really determined by our moment-to-moment -moment attitudes. You know, the accumulation really of who you are doesn't happen all at once. 
It happens by every little decision that you make. In other words, there's no small decisions. If we allow ourselves to be judgmental and negative toward people, we just gradually get a face and a life that's reflective of the habit that we're judgmental and negative. If we allow ourselves to be fearful, if we allow ourselves to be small-minded, if we allow ourselves to make moral decisions based on survival of the fittest, then that's who we become. If we instead, on a moment-to-moment basis, make our decisions according to our higher principles, then decades go by and we've been transformed into saints instead of just being older, ordinary people, which is what you see around you all the time. There's a whole lot of older, ordinary people. You see young people who haven't yet had a chance to stamp their faces with their true consciousness. And then you see a lot of older, ordinary people. And then you see people from Ananda, who you could always tell. I was talking to a, a, a woman in Nevada City who was a dentist who became interested in Ananda, Sherry Bernadette, many of you know her. And part of the reason she became interested in Ananda is because people from Ananda started coming to her to have dental work done. And first one, then two, then three, and it got to be a game with her. The patient would come and she would say, I know, that, I know they're from Ananda because there was just a quality of consciousness about them that set them apart from everybody else. She just knew who they were and and she was always right because a lot of decisions had been made according to uh, right principles that resulted in an overall vibration. And you know, she was not talking about Swami Kriyananda and Jyotish only. She was talking about everybody. Just, uh, you know, the, the humblest devotee still has made a lot of decisions that have have stamped our consciousness. So the effort is, you know, we've been working through to to get clear about what's written in this book is extremely important because otherwise without even thinking, we just fall back into it as if it were true. I'm going to just say one more thing about that. A good friend of mine who's an Episcopal priest um, was having a conversation with me when I was asking him some questions actually about early Christianity because it occurred to me that Jesus must have taught cooperative communities because the first thing that happened after Jesus died is they all put their goods together and made communities. So, I mean, they could only have done it if that's what he suggested. I've never heard Jesus described as the father of the cooperative communities movement, but it seems obvious. So I was asking my friend about this, and he was giving me various answers, which I didn't really think were true including the, the answer that they all thought the world was about to end, so they were getting all together. That just seemed too wacky, because Jesus knew the world wasn't about to end, and all his disciples couldn't have been so dumb as to think the world was about to end, because it wasn't. And so he couldn't really have taught his direct disciples that the second coming was going to be the end of the world. That was something that happened later. And so in this context, I was talking to my friend Chuck about this, and. Um, he said something about the phrase, he just used this phrase. Well, you know, the, uh, uh, the teachings of Jesus or the Christian theology evolved over several centuries after Jesus passed away. And I, I just sort of let that sit for a minute. I said, Chuck, <laughs> Jesus was fully realized. He, he, I mean, like, he presented the whole thing. And in fact, what happened is it was corrupted over several centuries. He told his disciples what the truth was. He didn't have to wait for a few hundred years for people to put their own interpretations on it. And you know, Chuck has a divinity degree from Yale or something like that. He's a big, big educated man and a very bright fellow. 
And he just stared at me for a moment, then he just laughed and laughed because he'd been saying that for years. He'd been saying it even long after he found Ananda and never stopped to think that that doesn't make any sense. You know, people 200 years later didn't know more about Jesus' teachings than Jesus did. He was the one who knew, and more likely his direct disciples got it better than anybody else afterwards. But, but myths like that just keep going, and people just say them, and they just think that they're the truth, and you don't even know about it. So when Swami says, you know, he's taking on all these big guns and really trying to take their theories down, and he really is trying to take them down, not because they're totally wrong, and in fact he says it in this book, I'm not so much arguing with their facts, I'm arguing with the interpretation of those facts, which is a great difference. And, and I think that is really an important point. People look at certain phenomenon and describe it, but then they draw conclusions based on their orientation. And he even says in here that Darwin's conclusions were not necessarily based on the facts, they were based on the pessimistic philosophy of the century in which he lived. It was just sort of the overall consciousness of the century. In fact, there's probably a lot that's wrong with Darwin's entire theory completely, but uh, Swami, you can see, gracefully decides that he's just not going to bother. We're not going to bother to trace that one down, he says, and, because it's not necessary to destroy it for what he's trying to say. Although Master himself said, they will never find the missing link because there isn't one. <laughs> he said, uh, mankind is a special creation. It didn't grow up from the apes. I mean, the whole concept that it evolved from the apes doesn't take into account that we're descended from the angels. You know, we didn't just, it wasn't like there was sort of the infinite, then there were the apes, and God just tapping his foot waiting for the apes to finally get up to the point where, you know, they could accept God consciousness. I mean, it just doesn't make any sense. It's the other way around. I mean, who knows? I can't say how it was really done. But Master said that, that, that human beings are the manifestation of, of the capacity for God-realization in material form. And Swamiji uh, doesn't, doesn't go to the question of why man does have this great big unused brain. But the reason mankind has this great big unused brain is because in a self-realized master it's used, essentially. That, that all of that is, the, that, that is the promise of our superconsciousness not a sign that nature didn't know what it was doing. Nature knew exactly what it was doing. It's just that most of us don't know what we're doing. But you, again, you see how once you miss the fundamental point, you just start trying to make things make sense without having any string to pick it up from. And of course, the fundamental point is superconsciousness and self-realization. Sanatana Dharma, that which is. Why were we born? For what end were we made? This is the question that always has to be asked. Um, Swami starts this whole chapter in a very interesting way, just talking a lot. I was saying to David, this whole book really explains Ananda. He did a marvelous thing of explaining exactly how we work without ever using us as an example, or, or I mean, without ever explicitly using us as an example, the communities that he's built. But this whole beginning part, when he talks about that every community begins with a discussion of how it's going to be organized. And, and it was, it's really true. He said every book he's read, and for a long time he became persuaded that that was really the most important question. And for many years in the 70s, when we used to go around talking about communities when people cared more about it, because it was sort of a movement at that point, people would always ask us about how did we make decisions, how was our government organized, and we would dutifully answer all those questions, perhaps too dutifully now. I, I, I always knew that there was something wrong with the questions, but I could never quite 
articulated until, I mean, he articulates it perfectly in here. But there was always the question of what is the system? Because there is this thought form somehow that, that the system determines how things turn out. And Swami uses this the word all through this chapter, the word mechanistic. That Darwin's whole idea of how evolution takes place is mechanistic. That it's all about what the system is. And he sort of prepares us to question that by talking about all this experience he had about organizing groups of people and how it works. And Swamiji is, often tells the story on himself of being part of SRF and being put in charge of the center department and deciding that he really wanted to pull the centers into order. And he was, as he says too, just a young fellow and some of the center leaders of SRF at that time were direct disciples of Master and many years his senior, both chronologically and on the path, but he had the responsibility and they had been quite accustomed to just running their centers pretty much any way they wanted to. And they had their direct relationship with Master and they just did what they wanted to. And then Swamiji thought, well, now it's time to get organized and wouldn't it be wonderful, and Rajasi approved the, the idea in general terms, wouldn't it be wonderful if we were all doing the same service every week and we had a sort of pattern that we followed. And so he started developing these patterns. And he also had this idea in his mind, Swami's nothing if not courageous, that he wanted to, he saw that the great shortcoming of the entire situation in terms of the spreading of Master's teaching was that the dyna dynamism of every center depended on if there was somebody dynamic there to lead it. And so he had this thought in his mind that it would be far more efficient if you could create a dynamic system. So he would create a dynamic system and then it would be less dependent on the individuals involved. You know, very simple matter. To a certain extent, when he wrote the festival for us here, he was trying to buoy up the service so it wouldn't be entirely dependent on the individual minister's sermon, that there would always be, and the other part of it when he wrote the festival was so that every week, no matter what the specific sermon topic was, there would be a whole presentation of this teaching. And that was a very valid thought. And of course, ritual and so on has a, a real place in spiritual life. But back to SRF. So he started developing um, the, you know, the service readings and all, a lot of things that SRF still you know, rigidly adheres to. And he worked very hard at it. He, he had all these different plans. He communicated with everyone. And he, he irritated some people. And um, several people, he said, actually, he thinks resigned just to sort of get away from what he was trying to impose on them. And uh, the story that he refers to here is that Kamala Silva was in, in charge of the Oakland Meditation Group. And you know Kamala from the wonderful book she's written, The Flawless Mirror. And, um, and the Oakland Meditation Group, uh, the SRF group, was by far and away the most dynamic because Kamala, of course, had a wonderful devoted spirit and she was so sweet and uh, devotional and it was just a wonderful meditation group. But her health was failing and so she quit. She retired. And Swami said overnight, it went from being the best to being nothing at all. And it was because it was her spirit. And so after a tremendous committed effort on Swami's part to replace people with systems, he totally accepted the fact that it doesn't work. It's just as simple as that. It doesn't work. That the people are the reality. And he also came to what he says here, that if people have the right spirit, any system will work. 
because they will act it out with the right spirit. And if the people have the wrong spirit, he said, no system will work because they'll act it out with the wrong consciousness and they'll make it something petty and oppressive or useless in one way or another. So all through the, um, the years of Ananda, Swamiji has always put primary emphasis on, on people's energy and attitudes. If the attitudes are right, then everything else will follow. He tells, uh, often tells a story of many years ago of when Ananda was really in its very beginning stages and uh, when we used to, oh, and, and you know, we just really struggled with very small amounts of money and everything was on a, bare, a near survival basis. We laugh about it now. It's not really that we have any more now, it's that we just simply go broke at a much higher level. By that, I was amused by something I read about Walt Disney. Walt Disney's, um, I mean, he, he built a big company and did many things and by a devotee standard lived quite comfortably, but his company was always struggling. And the building of Disneyland was an enormous uh, indebtedness. He worked with his brother and his brother would borrow the money and he would spend it. That was basically the system they had. And there was really never anything to spare until well after Disneyland was well underway. Uh, and then finally, but just at some very critical point in all of that, his brother called him in and um, you know, just told him, we can't go on, it's just not going to work. Because Walt Disney's attitude was, don't tell me how much it costs, just tell me how, what the best way to do it is. And he, he wouldn't allow accountants at any of his creative meetings. He just wouldn't let them there. When they, he saw them there once or twice, he said, what are you doing in this meeting? Go away. You know, they would just decide how to do it and then his brother would figure out how they would pay for it. But they paid for it with a huge amount of debt. So his brother was very concerned because they were so many millions and millions of dollars in debt. And so he was going to have this real serious conversation. This biography hinted but did not elaborate on the tension between the brothers from time to time. Um, and Walt Disney, instead of getting really upset by it, just began to laugh and laugh. And he said to his brother, he said, remember when we couldn't borrow $100? And look, the bank has lent us $26 million. He said, we must be doing something right. <laughs> you know? And in another context, someone said to uh, him, you must be a very rich man. And he said, well, I owe millions of dollars, so I suppose I am. You know, the same thing. People trust me to borrow all this money. It must mean that I'm worth something. It was a sort of a, a different way to look at it. But Swami's attitude toward um, our financial situation and everything had always been, is the energy right? Is the spirit right? Because if the energy is right and the spirit is right, everything else will follow. And if the energy is wrong and the spirit is wrong, it's going to fall apart. Maybe it'll fall apart financially, probably, but it will just simply fall apart. It won't succeed. And once he'd been away for a while and Seva gave him a report on what was happening and Seva was the one who ran the finances and she thought that things were pretty grim. And so she explained everything to Swami on the level of it's all pretty grim. And at the end of it he said, but you know, the energy is wonderful, he said, so everything is fine. He was just... He was the Chinese emperor going around listening to the music. And if the music was right, he knew that the thing would work itself out. Whether every enterprise would succeed, whether we'd never have any debt, whether things would go into, uh, you know, would, would work out one way or another, was so much less important than if the energy was there, everything would follow. And he, um, he has this comment, I think it has it in early on. No, he, he talks also about, um, what was it that he said? Uh, not my thought. He was saying it's not that you don't need a system 
but that systems alone never create anything. Well, that was a thought that I lost, so let me find it. Oh, I know what he was saying that I really found interesting, but he says it later. I'll wait till I get there in a moment. I also loved, don't you love where he made that comment about uh, even after it's actually gone, the legend lives on and the legend will live for a while. And he loves to tell that story about being in Greece at those monasteries and visiting this monastery, which he considered to be one of those spiritual mausoleums. And it was just a dead place. And then this other woman says, oh, there was so much peace there. So I said, well, I didn't feel any particular peace. Well, now that you mention it, she said, neither did I. But that's what I thought I was supposed to feel. And one of the things that happens that is always such a deadly element in any organization or group is that sometimes if things become so codified on the outside, then people themselves try to match themselves to the rules. You know, this is what I'm supposed to feel, this must be what I'm feeling. We had The early years of Ananda were actually really quite wonderful in certain ways. Swamiji's leadership was almost a well-kept secret. Odd as that may sound to some of you now, even the role that he played at Ananda was simply not well known. In the beginning years, especially, he played a very, uh, he, he played a very stepped back role because there were lots of people there that weren't that in tune with the real vision of Ananda and they were sort of sorting it out and he just didn't have the support base to really assert his position. And uh, it was sort of like you'd be at Ananda for a while and then you would gradually sort of sense that the, the, the grand central source of ideas and energy was somehow emanating through Swamiji. And it would be sort of like you'd say to someone, I think Swamiji's really the moving energy here, isn't he? I mean, you, you'd think that's an odd thing. And then someone would say, yes, but don't talk about it. Because Swami himself would just um, completely uh, duck the issue. He would refuse to put himself in any kind of a recognizable leadership role beyond a, a very small um, form. And in many ways, it was the best possible way for Ananda to be organized because there was no expectation. You just, if you tuned in to where the spiritual energy was coming from and what it meant, you did it entirely because you really felt it. And so it was really your reality. It wasn't anybody telling you what you ought to do. There was nothing to rebel against. It was you either knew it or you didn't know it. And as the years have passed, and especially more recent years, where the direct relationship between Swamiji and so many people isn't there anymore, and so you have to hear it secondhand or thirdhand from other people being enthusiastic, and then he appears, and a certain group of experienced people are so excited that he's coming that everybody else gets caught up in the excitement. But there's this thought that, oh, something spiritual is about to happen. And we try sort of to have a spiritual experience. Fortunately, much of the time, his energy communicates. But I find it unfortunate that the form now precedes the experience. Because, you see, that's always dangerous if the form precedes the experience, because then it at least potentially robs people of the opportunity to have their own experience. And for people who are less secure in themselves, it can even force them to pretend to have experiences they're not having, just, or to affirm them just because that's what everyone, they don't want to feel left out, they want to be part of the group. It's an odd thing, isn't it? Um, but that's why Swamiji talks so much about this. And if you even read, you know, he talks about rules and so on, but even if you read the Ananda uh, rules of conduct, 
for Ananda monastic members. There's not a rule in that book. If you actually read it carefully, it's all about right attitude. It's all about consciousness. There are a few recommendations. Before you make an important decision, you should consult. You know, marriage is not something that should be undertaken lightly, and you should consult. So those things you might call rules. But even then, it doesn't say, thou shalt, and if thou doesn't, this will happen to thou, or anything like that. It merely suggests that that would be a way to do it. But almost all of that, with, you know, with those tiny exceptions, it's all just describing the right attitude to have and the right consciousness to have, because that is the rule. If you have the right consciousness, then you don't have to make any other rules because it will just follow. And it's so sweet, he, he also makes just the comment that, and above all, the consciousness that's needed is charity. And if you think through every sort of altercation that ever happens in a group, and wrong behavior, and wrong, if, if there was a charitable attitude one toward another, and I just don't mean leaders toward the followers, but I mean also followers toward the leaders. If there's a charitable attitude, a, a kindness, a willing to uh, be supportive and forgiving, uh, and to be generous in the way that you respond, generous on many levels, generous financially, generous in your heart, generous in your acceptance of people, generous in what you're willing to put up with, all of that, a charitable attitude, then everything runs very easily. And it's when there isn't a charitable attitude that everything gets very difficult. I remember many years ago, in the early years of Ananda, that before many of us were very experienced with human nature, one man who was quite prominent, who, because of this story, hasn't been with us for decades, very nice man, but flawed. He did some uh, exceedingly irresponsible things. There was no way to measure it by any, any standard, no matter how kindly you measured, it was very bad judgment on his part. As it happened, Swamiji was in India, and a few um, overzealous individuals, as Swami said, went after a gnat with a baseball bat, and just did not have a charitable attitude. You know, and, and unfortunately created so much chaos that this individual got derailed for a really long time. But... Uh, it wasn't a matter of system or anything like that. It was just wrong consciousness. That's really what wiped, you know, wiped it out. Um, but right consciousness always saves it. And he was also saying, um, he was also really trying to talk about the fact that, that there's no inspiration in the form of something. Just to say, this is how we do it, doesn't in itself create any, any spark. And he uses the example of how many artists can be trained in techniques, but only a few of them have the inspiration to really become artists, because it's not the technique that really makes you an artist. You, you, you may have to learn the technique, but the technique alone is just the mechanism that allows you to, to express inspiration if you have it. And it's just the same in organizations. And he's also just really trying to say, because he's trying to use this as a handbook to encourage people to found communities, don't spend all your time figuring out in great detail how every little thing happens. When people would ask me in those early years, well, what do you do about uh, arguments and disagreements and things like that? And I would answer, it just doesn't come up. And I think people oftentimes just didn't think I was telling the truth. And I, I didn't say that people are always nice or that people never have, never have disagreements. 
but we don't have to have a system for settling them. We don't have to have this elaborate system. I mean, my God, people have such elaborate systems. Then four come together and six arbitrate and then three do this and then seven more do that and then these 16 will decide what those four shall do and you know, just people sit up late at night and just spin out all these things. It's very common. But at Ananda, we have none of that. We've never needed it because we have an attitude of uh, look first to yourself an attitude of meditation, an attitude of attuning yourself to God, an attitude of feeling that if there's disharmony outside, then I have to think about my own inner harmony first. And all of that solves problems because there's true inspiration in that. Swami says also, interestingly, insofar as any of the existing monasteries that have these really rigid rules laid out actually have vitality, it's to the extent to which the individuals in them are still connected to the founders. And, and they still be, he says it, it's, he, he's, so, he's so brilliant in the way he says it. The founders had sufficient magnetism that they are able to project it even forward all these centuries. You know, you can still tune into their consciousness. St. Teresa, St. Clair, St. Francis are the ones he expresses. So that individuals can find inspiration and then when they act out the form they're not acting it out as a form they're acting it out from the inspiration and he mentions the story of the end of Francis's life when Francis's work um, solidified and died while he was still alive it was a most amazing experience for him to have to live through he, he had done it entirely through spirit and through inspiration but then brother Elias who Shivani told me recently is actually not considered to be such a traitor by the Franciscans themselves it's only people like us who think he's a total traitor but he came in and while Francis was still there and he just began to pull it all into rules and Francis was there and they wanted Francis's first rule for the Franciscan order was imitate Jesus and depend on God that was about it and so now it's toward the end of his life and there's hundreds or thousands of brothers and there's the Claire's and everyone and they want him to do something more appropriate they've been recognized by the Pope he's recognized as a, a saint there's just this huge Franciscan movement and all they still have is this little you know bit of a rule so they asked him to write it out again so he went into meditation in a cave and he prayed deeply and he came back with this uh, love poem to God and this exhortation to the brothers and the sisters to always love God wholeheartedly and devote themselves with complete faith and absolute surrender just throw yourself into the hands of God and Elias said maybe you could try again so Francis tried again and he went back and he went into seclusion and he came out with the same thing again he did it at least twice he might have done it three times and then what happened literally what happened is they lost it and they wrote another one yeah they did by this point Francis himself had resigned he resigned from the order at a certain point he resigned from his own order I mean he remained a brother but he resigned from being the head of the order he resigned when he came back from the Crusades and discovered that they had built this huge building to be something for the Franciscans they had built this huge building he saw the building Francis did he went up on the roof and with his bare hands he tried to rip it down 
he started ripping the roof tiles off and throwing them onto the ground. And he was so horrified to see what they had done with what he had established. But after that, he realized that it wasn't for him to do. I mean, who knows what he thought inside himself about whatever state of consciousness had come upon him that he climbed onto the building and tried to rip the tiles off. I think he also saw, quite realistically, that it was beyond him to influence, that he had spawned the child and the child was now having its own reality. He just became a simple brother again and just said, I will just lead by example. And then he just let them have it after that. A very strange story in a certain way. Sometimes you'll hear in the Ananda context, somebody will make comment about so-and-so as sort of an Elias. And what that means is somebody who comes in and acts like they're really with you, but in fact have such a different concept that they're really destroying what you're doing. I mean, it's not necessarily an Elias to us, but just sort of an Elias, someone who... Because Elias was always full of praise for Francis and, you know, very... uh, Shivani mentioned to me that he has a, a grave of honor up somewhere in Assisi because he's considered a great hero of their order. But uh, odd, isn't it? How things work. But you see, the, the, the predilection to think that systems are, are real and that you can't... The whole argument with the Francis order was they used to just convene with no plans. No food, no plans, and no shelter. They would just rely on God. And, and the f- first time they had a really huge... Uh, convocation, which was like about 5,000 brothers, Francis still had enough influence to refuse to make any plans at all. And others were saying, well, it's one thing when there's 100 or 50 of us, but with 5,000 you must plan, and he refused. And then all the neighborhood mobilized and brought everything they needed to them. But uh, no one had the faith after that to be able to do it, or necessarily the power. It's It's just the way things work, isn't it? But what Swami's trying to say to us, let us learn from that and just come back to it. It's interesting, he also mentions the uh, Constitution of the United States as being one of the most perfect forms that you can create. And in fact, everyone who studies it, it's a a beautiful document. But even that is being completely destroyed in its spirit and its application by both the courts and the legislature over the years now. I mean, the, the kind of court decisions that are coming down are so contrary to any common sense understanding of what was intended, and yet they're all justified on the basis of the same document, which is to say once the spirit is lost, uh, then even the ideas that come, they're all confused. They just... Uh, and and this, is what, this is the idea that I thought was so uh, marvelous that Swami wrote here, and I, I've read it over quite a few times because I've observed this over the years at Ananda. He talks about having recognized experts. Experts in what you're doing is not always such an asset. He was being very specific about communities. Oftentimes through the years of Ananda, this has been a phenomenon I've watched. And again, Swami's articulated things that we've just observed and know to be true, which is people will come who are very good at something that we need as a community. But whenever we see such people coming, it it has always made us kind of nervous because it almost has, it has almost never worked. And, and, and partly we've, we've figured it out for many different levels and, and come up with different little ideas about how it is. Even so much so that sometimes if somebody comes with a real skill, this was when we were just primarily one ashram up in Nevada City. Here it's different. 
because people tend to keep their professions. They'll come live at Ananda, but they'll just keep their jobs. So it's a different thing. Ananda Village is an ashram of a more classical type where you step in and whatever you were doing, you leave behind and you embrace the whole ashram lifestyle. But especially in the early years when everybody worked within the context of Ananda and it was just a whole different story. If somebody had a skill, no matter how talented they were and no matter how much we needed it, we would generally try to make sure that person didn't work in that area for at least a year or two or three years because it just never worked. And the, the explanation that we would often come up with was, well, the individual was too conceivably ego-identified with what they did. And it was better for them if they were able to separate their, gain an identity as a devotee before, instead of confusing it by having an identity as an accountant or a, or a, a marketing expert or whatever it might be. But Swami gives yet another reason, and we also knew that somehow people would come in and knew exactly how things should be done, but it never, it never seemed like the right thing to do, or it never worked when we tried to do it. It never worked for us, is the only way I can think of to say it. And Swami puts it in here very simply. He said, sometimes traditionally recognized ways of doing things are outmoded in the new context. That the, the mere fact that it's the way it's always been done is almost to say, but we're not doing that anymore. We're doing something else. And because we're doing something else, we have to do it a little bit differently. And even if you come back around to some of the same basic principles, if you come back around to them with a different attitude, then you're expressing them somewhat differently. Do you know what I mean? You're doing it with a different mindset or a different orientation. I remember in a very small way, but this was specifically, um, somebody had been studying marketing principles and had the principle in mind that before you commit, you test various ways, various advertisements, various covers, and you see what the public responds to, and then you do more after that. These are just you know basic ways, I guess, that people do things. And we had this gentleman, his name is Norman Seif, and he was, and conceivably is, a photographer in Hollywood for um, many, many at that time of the very famous singers and actors and actresses. Um, I can't remember now, but many of the real popular groups featured his photographs, I mean, of themselves. He was a person photographer. And he got involved with us for a while, very nice man, and he came up and did a, a big photo shoot with Swami. And I mean, boy, we did see, though, what a professional photo shoot was like. I mean, he set up all the background, and then he had like three assistants and three cameras, and they would load the cameras, and they would just keep handing in the cameras, and he would just keep shooting and shooting. I mean, he shot hundreds of pictures. And for those of you who have been around a long time, like 20 years ago, there were a whole series of very professional-looking black-and-white photographs of Swami, very nice photographs. I can't identify them more than that, but there was a whole group of them that Norman Seif took all of them. And somewhere in that, someone started saying, well, because we were, we were making photographs for book covers, and someone said, well, we should, the, the person who'd been studying all this stuff, we should do several and see which one goes better. Norman's answer was great, because this man was really good at what he did, and he was smarter than that. He said, why would you let the lowest common denominator of public taste determine what you do? <laughs> he said, you should decide who you are and what you have to present, and that's what you should put forward. You know, just because he was a true artist and he knew that you don't just go around and ask everybody else's opinion. You feel it from the inside and that's the power of what you do. Now, of course, 
you balance those things with common sense. You look at what other people are doing and so on. But you also do it with your own spirit. We're not here to uh, let them tell us. We're, we're trying to lead something, so we have to do it in our own way. Um, he also said in here that if people have the right consciousness, the skills will come to them. That the skills are the, sort of the last thing. And you can learn how to do anything if you approach it with the right energy. And even then you can draw from people who know what to do, but if you approach it from the right spirit. So we would always put it some way that you've got to get, we'd sometimes say you've got to get in tune first before you can do things. And then that, 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 that word became very confusing. I can't tell you how many people just went away in total dismay and confusion. You just thought we were just a bunch of idiots. But um, as Swami would say, in some peculiar way, our way works. In the early years of Ananda, when it really was chaos and was nothing but spirit, there were no systems at all. And there was this wonderful um, Austrian attorney who came. <laughs> I mean, talk about, you know, a clear, exact attitude. And I, Swamiji once, um, when Swami was speaking in Austria before he, I, I don't know if he lectures in German now himself, but this man was translating for him and Swami writes about this. And the man was doing vocal exercises in order to be able to speak his own language. <laughs> it was Swami's comment about German. But he was an attorney and so in Austria. And he was, but he looked at Ananda and he could not, he, he just could not figure out, you know, how we tied our shoes in the morning. Because he couldn't find any codes, any rules. He just couldn't find anything that was the entire definition of how reality works for him. He just he couldn't see it. But he had to concede after spending a half a year or a year with us that somehow it did work. But he couldn't put his finger on how it worked. And he couldn't understand how it just moved forward through magnetism. It moved forward through the divine consciousness of everyone involved, that it just is going to go forward and it's going to come out right because it's going to come out right according to what matters to us. Because there was real inspiration in it. And that's where the energy comes from. Does that all make sense? I'm saying it many times because many times through your life at Ananda, you will have a desire and you will say, why doesn't somebody do something about that? <laughs> or you yourself will try to do something about that. But you'll realize in trying to set up a mechanism, um, you may or may not actually be serving the spirit. Swami himself writes in the path that after Master put him in charge of the monks, a lot of the monks, the monks didn't stay. They, there was just a lot of, of uh, coming and going. And monks that he, Swami himself, had grown to love and depend on as his friends, some, many of them left, and he, he knew it was to a large extent because there was no supportive structure. There was no monastic order of any kind really except in name. And so Master put him in charge, so he started trying to create more of a, a group energy, as he put it, you know, regular meditations, a few rules. He said, but he knew the more he did of that, the less he would feel at home at Mount Washington. And he said he felt like he'd volunteered for a suicide mission, was how he put it, because the, the complete freedom was also what made it so wonderful for those who were self-motivated. And it's been a, a paradox for many of us who've been part of Ananda from the beginning that the more organized it gets, it's a good thing. But we've all, we all try to keep it just a little bit uh, confused, too. 
you know, just, just enough so that it doesn't all make sense. I was having a discussion someone with someone just very recently about a whole policy of Ananda, and I said, you know, it really doesn't make any sense, that policy. It's totally inconsistent and it doesn't make sense. And let's just leave it like that. <laughs> you know, we can't bring it to a better focus. Let's not even try. Just leave it. It's fine. And sometimes it's so. It's just the way it works. Let it be applied with charitable consciousness. That's the best way. Let me take a little bit of a break. Time has passed. Oh, no, wait. Well, we can take a break anyway. I thought it was later than it is. Thank you. Um, any questions or comments? If not, I'm going to move into the... Yes? It seems like we're committed to the form because we're so uh, proud of the democracy that some, you know, America's founded on. We point to that as being the reason why America works better than all the other countries in the world. So it's... Well, that's a very good point. Rick was saying that we point to the form of democracy, and that's what makes us special. special. But in fact, you know, the reason I was looking like that, because we've had so many different discussions about what is the appropriate response to the war in Iraq. If you don't favor the war, what should you really do? And what is America? Is it the particular um, system that we have now? And we were talking about it being the fund that America is really the spirit of the people. And that it really, the spirit of the people is really what makes us what we are. Democracy represents that, the, the, especially the original documents represent that. But it's really that spirit which defines America, and that's what we're really loyal to. These governments come and go, but that spirit is intact. And even if it's a particularly unspectacular cycle of leadership, the spirit is still there and really is there that basic goodness, generosity, belief in individuals. Um, Bush, I heard, I caught a glimpse of uh, Bush and, on uh, television last night, and he said, democracy is not America's gift to the world. Democracy is the creator's gift to mankind. Which, I think he didn't, he might, I'm not sure if he used the word democracy, but he'd been speaking earlier than that about the inherent uh, worth, uh, worth of individuals, uh, the, divine, the divinely decreed inherent worth of individuals. That's what he said just before that. And then he was talking about democracy as an expression of that. So it's a very well put. And in fact, that is the, and that's the, that's the spirit that we're loyal to because that principle is still what the country is about, even if Shudras and Vaishas are running it in a more corrupt manner than we like, nonetheless, it's those principles that we're faithful to. We recognize the fact that they are running it in a Yes, we recognize that they're running it in a corrupt manner. And even if they take us in directions for a while we don't want to go, we have to stay the course because we have to restore the true principles again because the principles have not been abandoned. It still is that country. It's just being a little bit distorted right now. That's correct. You actually were the one who said that to me, and I was just sort of putting it into words. Yeah. Okay, anything else? Um, Swamiji spends a lot of time also on this whole subject of the scientific method. And we're, while we're sort of talking about sacred cows and divine and assumptions that don't necessarily serve us, he says a lot about how a lot of things have gotten confused says it repeatedly, because those people who are studying human beings 
or, or even animals, biology and other, and psychology, want to be considered true scientists. And true scientists feel that they must be objective and they have to be able to weigh and measure and, and hold things in forms that are reliable. And, and so Swami talks about that, that, that it doesn't really work once you're dealing with um, biology and, and humanity in any form because people are not rational. People are not predictable, people are not logical, people can't be quantified. Even a simple thing like, I remember, I mean this is going to a divine level, not even talking as they're talking, but I remember a few years ago when there was a study done that said a young, let's see, a woman, a woman over 40, her chances of getting married are more, uh, she's more likely to be shot by a terrorist than she is to be, get married again. Yeah, that was what it said, something like that. And then there was a lot of things in the newspaper and I might have, I might have been a woman over, a single woman over 35, an unmarried woman over 35. I mean, nowadays your chances of getting shot by a terrorist are really much greater. <laughs> than they were when that statistic came out, so still it's even worse. But uh, um, Swami, it, and it got to be sort of a joke, you know, it was a joke all over the place, a kind of a grim joke, but it was a joke. But Swami said, very simply, so there's no such thing as statistics, there's just individual karma. You know, your chances of something happening are entirely yours. You're not part of a demographic study. There's just no way. It won't happen to you because the law of averages says it has to happen and your, your number is up. It will happen to you because it's your karma to have it happen. And, and so there's just so much thinking like that about uh, trying to, to objectify human events without taking into account that human beings are involved. And this whole uh, thought even that somehow it's more likely to be true and more likely to be reliable if you take all of the um, consciousness element out of it and the individuality out of it. So he, he, um, he, he just talks about how that prejudice is making people not think clearly about what's really happening because then they would just have to admit that they can't quantify any of this that there's no way that they can, they can work in the method they're so determined to work because it doesn't apply. And that's where a lot of really bad thinking comes from. Um, I mean, you can quantify some things, but you can't get everybody to stay in line. It just won't happen. And you have to look at the actual behavior. I was very interested. I was trying to think how much this relates and doesn't relate, but um, somebody gave me a videotape of a, of a psychologist presenting his... Um, uh, much-learned story about marriage and divorce and so on. And they had done this long study of they had an apartment that had video cameras and they'd invite married couples to come and spend a day in the apartment and they would just tape them. They would just watch them interact. So it was sort of like a nice resort motel room. And uh, it wasn't a, a study of intimacy, it was just a study of people's lives, just living in a casual way. They didn't sleep there. And, uh, and then they just watched, and they tracked people for like 15 or 20 years, and they watched the couples that stayed married and the couples that didn't stay married, and they tried to figure out what, what the consistent patterns of behavior were that resulted in divorce and that resulted in marriage staying together. And he had some very interesting things to say. But it was also very interesting because it was all 
based on just really watching what people did with each other instead of sort of trying to apply theories or squeeze them into it or anything like that. But it was very, it was very interesting. And a lot of it was, seemed like quite true. And uh, some of it they could explain, some of it they couldn't explain. One very interesting, I'm just going to... He said one of, the, one of the things they discovered was that... Uh, that an absolute certain predictor of divorce was if the man refused to take any input from the woman. And, it, and, and they also said that uh, men who are physically abusive will, will absolutely not take input from their wives. They just won't, they just won't accept any input from their wives. Um, and he actually, and then he said, I want to show you sort of what this is like. He said, uh, for example, she says, my mother's coming on Thursday night. Maybe you could help get the house ready. We need to, you know, get the guest room ready and we need to move some furniture. He says, I have plans for Thursday night. I have a lot of things going on at work. There's a project I have to do. It was your idea to invite your mother anyway. That's not taking any input. He said, taking input looks like this. Sure. <laughs> but here's something that's also interesting. This is completely doesn't support anything I'm about to say, but it was just interesting. He said uh, that a friend of his does research on gender behavior with, with preschoolers, three and four-year-old. He said, starting from the age of four, little boys will not take input from little girls. The little girl will come up and say, let's go play in the sandbox. And the boy will say, no. Another little boy will come up and say, let's go play in the sandbox. And he'll say, sure. Isn't that interesting? It's very interesting. He said, it's just, and it's all a matter of degree, but it was also interesting. He said that the women just all take feedback from the men. There's just almost no situation where the woman is, freezes the man out in the way that the man freezes the woman out. It's a very interesting. Sort of, a, and then the fact that it should be so deep in there. And anyway, but it was fascinating. Now, I, I can't even make that relate, so I'm just going to go on. I started out thinking it did, but I can't. It all had to do with how pure a science it is when you deal with human nature. So I'm not sure whether that was or not. So I'm not even going to try. But here's the, the way, yes? Oh, you have to change it. Okay. It works, and breaking it down too much doesn't work. At the same time, being too rigid and it doesn't work. It's very, it's, just, it's interesting. That one simple fact is, I've thought a great deal about it because I've seen so much of it. You know, that simple fact of uh, the male inclination to reject her. I mean, just on principle, before he even knows what she's actually talking about. It's just, it, women just can't understand it. They just, it's, just so, it's just so not our nature. And men are, it's so, it's so men's nature, they're always protecting their position or something. At the same time, if a man allows himself to be dominated by the woman, it, it really doesn't work. Swami is very emphatic. He says it never works. You know, if the woman takes over, it never works. So there has to be some kind of a, a dynamic balance there. But receptivity is fundamental. Anyway, yeah, you guys can just think about what you want to do about it now, now that I've just put it out there. I said to David, well, I have a lot more sympathy. Yeah, you can go get my husband, too, form a little auxiliary. Well, I know why David resists me, because, I mean, if he ever let me get the upper hand, there would be no end to it. He knows it perfectly well. <laughs> he has to hold his ground. But, mm-hmm.
but if a society is not going to do well either if they don't, if men do not take their inspiration from them. Yeah. Yes, it's absolutely true because it's just it's it's just out of whack, and it, I mean even the fact that you know physically abusive husbands refuse to take any input that was a very interesting statement, and this is based on I think twenty years of enormous amount of just observation. They just ob observed and quantified, and just said these are the this is what people do who stay married. This is what people do who get divorced. They were just trying to show somebody. This is what works, this is what doesn't work. Just very, does it work? That's where it fits in. It was just a very, does it work? I knew it was done differently. The question was, what works? They didn't start with theories or anything. They just watched and said, this works and this doesn't. And then they tried to figure out why it might or might not work. But very. They were, they, they were at least somewhat receptive. It was a matter of degree. Some are more, some are less. And they had all these different ways, you know, of having watched for all these years. But they, if there's no receptivity, it's a certain sign of divorce. I mean, every couple where the man was totally unreceptive got divorced. That's how they put it. I mean, they had a list of like four or five things that absolutely guaranteed that the couple would get divorced. And, and a few things over here that guaranteed that they wouldn't. And that was one of them, that he won't take input from her. Now, I think it was an absolute standard rather than a, and, and I think it certainly had to do with, with conflict. This is one study, I can't really sort of stand up and say I know it's true, but it was very interesting. But um, I know lots of marriages where he takes very little, or, or I would say more, more, he won't take much directly. A lot of men take a lot of input. I know Jyotish said once in the class he was giving don't expect him to say anything. That's what Joe just said. Don't expect him to say anything, but just watch what he does. That was Joe Tish's advice. And I've seen lots of situations where he won't accept anything verbally and he won't acknowledge anything, but he will be different. So he does take it, he just doesn't take it in the way she wants him to take it. That's quite different. <laughs> in other words, he won't become a woman. He insists with absolute determination on remaining a man. That's one of the things that I've seen happens a lot in marriages, that he remains a man. She wants him to become a woman. I had a cycle, I had a cycle of counseling appointments. There's a lot of couples coming, and they all had the same issue, every one of them. They, all of them, the marriage almost worked. It was just a very little bit that she wanted different, and the difference, what she wanted, was the difference between a man and a woman. If, if he would just become a woman, <laughs> then everything would be perfect. And I had to just deliver the, the news that he wasn't going to, because he didn't want to. He wasn't born to be a woman, and he didn't like it. That's a big shock to us. But he doesn't like it. He just doesn't want to be like that. He doesn't want to be all touchy-feely, talky-walky stuff, you know? It's just not what he wants. It's male, you know? It's different. <laughs> but it, it's very interesting. It, it just drives women crazy, because it's so obvious. If he just expressed what he felt, if he just talked to me about this, if he just did this, it's like the, the list is really short, it's just that much. But he's not going to. So I've observed. And generally speaking, if he does, then that creates a whole other set of problems, <laughs> which is that you don't have any, you don't have a man in the marriage anymore. You have two women, and then that gets very confusing. 
Now there's degrees in all of this. This is, you know, this is the thumbnail sketch, but that's sort of what I see. These things come in waves through my life. There's like some big story that's up, and then there'll be like everybody will illustrate it. And then there'll be another one come, and then everybody will illustrate that one. That was a very interesting one. All these women who wanted their husbands to be like them. I mean, I, then I started watching myself, and I realized I was doing exactly the same thing. My only complaint against David was that he wasn't me. <laughs> Which it sounds so ridiculous, and I mean, I never had actually articulated it, but that's really what I was really upset about, is that he did not respond to situations like I did. Duh. But still, you know, you, you use a lot of emotional capital on that. And then you finally just, at some point in the whole big cycle, you just say not only, well, Davy said it perfectly once. She said, this was years ago. She said, I always admired Jyotish for being impersonal, but it took me many years to enjoy it. <laughs> so you kind of go through progressive stages. And then you finally actually realize this is not only an okay quality, it's actually admirable. You know, look at the self-restraint involved. Look at the, look at the this, look at the that. Look at the big picture attitude. Look at the willingness not to get involved in the petty details. Look how much time they don't waste. You know? All these, just, you can look at it from lots of angles. But all, all that, you know, men look at women and they think, why would I ever be like that? We find ourselves so attractive. <laughs> and we don't realize that a lot of men look at it and it's just not attractive to them. They may have spent incarnations extricating themselves from all of that little stuff. And they don't, they're just not going to go back into it. So that's what Swami says after he wrote the Secrets of Women book. When he just immersed himself in female consciousness, you have to understand Swami, and I think to this room I can say it. But he, he got great pleasure, great pleasure out of telling many of us, I immersed myself completely into the consciousness of a woman. He said, I just lived like a woman for days. I couldn't even relate to being a man. And then I came out of it, he said, it was terrible. <laughs> he said, all that emotion and just constant concern with all your, how you feel about everything, he said, it was awful. I mean, that's just, that was just his point of view. It was just awful. And I had to say, yeah, I know. Yeah. But that's what we're often, you know, we're just trying to lure them back into it. And they just look at it, and it just looks awful to them. Why would I go there? And, and, and uh, anyway, there you have it. Shall we go to Darwin for a minute? <laughs> Any other comments? Or? I just want to say a few things about Darwin, because I'm so proud of myself for having figured it out. Now let's see if I can remember it. What Swamiji emphasizes, and it's really two things. First of all, he, he talks about what I was saying earlier. That, that Darwin talks about this whole thing as being mechanistic, and he does not bring into it the issue of where you're going, why you're going, and the role that intelligence and consciousness plays at a certain point. And I mean, the evolution that we're most concerned about is not between newts and worms and things like that. It's the evolution of our own awareness. And he wants us to understand that at a certain point, intelligence takes over. And intelligence really directs our evolution. And also because Darwin only talks about it in terms of mechanics. He's not really talking about the only evolution that really matters, which is the evolution of our consciousness. And, and that there's, there's several ideas. The first I was touching at the beginning, which is that Darwin has planted this thought in our minds 
that it's, that it's a struggle and that it's all about a struggle for survival and that everybody's interested just in surviving, which as Swami points out, by the time you get to the human level, and even on lesser levels than that, he uses the, the example of the dog, and there's many examples of horses in battle and elephants in battle and many creatures who have association with men, with mankind also behave in very noble ways. I mean, and mother animals will, will sacrifice themselves for their young, or at least try to on many occasions. You'll see mother birds trying to lure predators away from the nest at great uh, sacrifice of themselves. It's, it's just not true. And so this whole thought form that this whole planet is run by everybody trying to survive at any cost is fundamentally a fallacy. And it's a very dangerous fallacy because it just gets us into thinking ways that just aren't true. Really, there's countless examples, and they're the examples of real evolution, is that when intelligence and consciousness comes in, survival itself may not matter. What really matters is our consciousness. And sometimes our consciousness of nobility is what we want to have survive. We don't care whether our bodies survive, it's our, it's our true self that has to be honored. And, and we need to... Uh, take perhaps what Darwin has talked about, even just the ideas of, uh, of, of beings evolving, but really see that we need to keep on evolving. It's not up to us to sort of constantly affirm the most uh, animalistic qualities in us. We have evolved past them. So we take this image that Darwin has of things evolving and say, yes, thank God. And now we live at a much more elevated and refined level, and that's the, the, uh, that's the fittest, somebody was saying, that that's what is the fittest, is those who have the most refined consciousness. And then also Swami was saying about it, it's not mechanistic entirely, there's will involved. And then he was saying, hinting at it only, but so therefore take your evolution in hand. Instead of just sort of waiting, trying to, to evolve a little more, sort of waiting for your cells to mutate in some way or another, Realize that you can influence it by, your, by the direction of your own intelligence. And then he brings it all the way back in such a marvelous way to communities. And what better way to evolve except by putting ourselves into social groups that actually foster what it is that we really want to have. And it's just really a wonderful way to sort of draw the whole circle. That's what he's saying. He's not trying to refute what they're saying. He's trying to interpret it differently. So you look at all of creation and you see, you see this progressive cycle happening. And Darwin tried to put a certain meaning on it that we all came from the animals and we're all going up. And we are, we did come from the animals and we are going up. But it's not our physical bodies, it's our awareness that's evolving all the way through. And that as we get to these higher levels of awareness, instead of applying to those levels of awareness the law of the jungle, we say we're out of the jungle. Let us apply to this level of awareness uh, a much more refined consciousness and let that be our standard because that's what will ensure our survival. Uh, our enlightened self-interest, if you want to call it what he called it before, but interest of, uh, in those qualities that will really make us happy. And, and in our just in daily conversation and interaction, that's what we need to emphasize and communicate to others and not, not allow these false ideas to stand. Okay, that was my little comment. Is there anything else that we need to talk about tonight?
Okay, I should warn you, you have 26 pages to read next week. That's solidly twice as much as any chapter has been. I keep saying that because I have to make sure to know that. And it's Freud, so. But then we've made it. We've made it through. <laughs> okay, that's the spirit. <laughs> All right. <laughs> that's the spirit. Okay.